The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Scottish rapper, author, and social commentator Darren Loki McGarvey. In this episode, we talk about Darren's new TV series, Class Wars, coming soon on BBC Scotland. We take a look at Scotland's drug death statistics and the Scottish Government's recent response and actions. And we discuss suicide and why deeply uncomfortable conversation will ultimately be more effective than well-intentioned hashtags and soundbites. Bleathered is written, recorded and produced by me and me alone and it's grown through word of mouth. So if you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it because it's a great help. Cheers. So first things first then, uh, new TV project, Class Wars, coming out very soon. Um, talk me through that. What can people expect to see? Uh, well, it's the same team that did the first series, uh, Darren McGarvey Scotland. Is that so turn? Myself, yep, turn to t- television. And uh, Stephen Bennett directing, um, myself as writer and presenter, uh, and it's it's basically a kind of a, a, an in depth and comprehensive exploration of class as a concept, uh, and and we look at the way that it's kind of understood commonly, you know, people from different social classes, mm. but we also look at all of the subtler ways that we present in terms of what class we come from, whether we realise it or not, so how we speak, the changes that we have to make in order to move up the social ladder. Um, We talk about accent, dialect. We talk about social mobility. We we deal with researchers and experts like sociolinguists and social mobility researchers, but also we talk to just like, you know, people who have experienced uh, social mobility, maybe during the mid twentieth century, when social mobility was still a possibility for a lot of people, um, mm. and basically, right at the core of it is a strong argument that while obviously discussion about class can be divisive, if you're making fun of people or you're judging a whole class of people, whether they're posh or whether they're poor, uh, at the same time that shouldn't prevent us or dissuade us from still using this lens to understand why certain social problems persist, why wealth polarisation persists, why some people do a lot better than others, even Mm -hmm. uh, the people who were born in the poorer areas might be academically smarter, might be putting in more work. And uh, I think as far as stuff about class on mainstream television goes, this is, in my view, probably the most radical thing mm-hmm. that has been made in a long time. Um, and and that's, for me, uh, going to be interesting to see how the response is. Mm-hmm. I remember, was it was it like January 2020 that your last one came out, or was it in 2019? It was autumn of 2019. Um, but we made it the previous year, so they just they kind of held on to it for a bit because Aye. the channel had just started. And 
I really enjoyed that and I think that was really radical. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that and there was a lot of things that I was sort of confronted with that, that because I don't know about other people but I can only speak for myself. I become really insular in the sense of Glasgow. Um, and only really considering what's going on there. But I think it's when you were up north. Was it the Shetlands that had the big cocaine problem and a really high suicide issue? No, we were. We never managed to get as north as that. Uh, there were discussions about that sort of stuff, but uh, thankfully for for my mental health, we never <laughs> that. But we 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 did this sort of six cities, you know. We explored mm. uh, we explored uh, urban poverty, rural poverty. Uh, homelessness, the drug deaths, um, but also in terms of it distinguishing itself from most of the stuff out there, even the really good stuff about poverty you find on television, right mm-hmm. at the heart of what we did was we we put people experiencing it kind of front and centre, but we didn't try to um, we didn't try to elicit from them the kind of typical poverty responses that you get mm-hmm. from contributors, you know? So we, yeah. we try to show that that uh, a lot of people who are struggling in poverty are tremendously resourceful, uh, are very uh, responsible, and that m- more than just being dealt some bad cards in life, the systems and structures around them, which are designed by people often who have no experience of poverty, actually work mm-hmm. against them. And so, you know, that's that's the main problem with social inequality in Britain right now. Mm-hmm. We um we first spoke, for anybody who's not heard, Darren and I first spoke back in August 2019. Uh, and we, well, it was more about your life, I suppose, the sort of chronology of events and all that. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the things that, we, that you spoke about that has always stuck with me and I still kind of regurgitate it as my own partner at times, although I do give you credit. But it was basically you saying how um, socially uh, sophisticated or how like basically sophisticated somebody who comes through a wee comfy can be. And one of the examples you used was knowing the exact moment or the the, the nuance of knowing when to cross the street when you see a group of people. Mm. If you go too early, and it's this instinctive thing, and I'd never thought about it this way, but if you go too early, you look like a shite bag. Mm-hmm. If you go too late, you look as if you're being confrontational. And it's just about timing it, and it's about timing looking at them just enough so they know you're not scared of them, but not looking away too much so that you're showing some sort of like, yeah. some sort of fear. And it's that, and you need to make all that in a split second. Yeah. And then you gave it there the example of if you put Boris, I saw you saying this the other day, put Boris Johnson and Pilton, take away all his resources and contacts, see how fucking quickly he gets back to number 10. Um, and, and so I, I suppose like giving then people the freedom to express themselves, as you say, not eliciting any particular response because, you could write you could write it, couldn't you? The stock response. You could normally pause something and go, he's gonna say XYZ. Yeah. So I think that'll probably catch people off guard when when they see that. Definitely. And with this with this series as well, it's four one hour episodes. Mm. So it had originally been three one hour episodes, but we generated so much strong material that we managed to get another hour out of it. Nice. And that was for a couple of reasons. One because of COVID, we made a decision to do a third of the filming at a specific location, uh, Lauriston Castle in Edinburgh, mm. which is a really kind of grand, prestigious setting, which I think immediately visually, aesthetically, 
shows the viewer that this is a different type of series from the first one where where mm. the kind of visual furniture was all of the kind of tropes of poverty, you know, the urban dereliction and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So this just looks different and, and feels different. The other aspect of it as well is that I've got a bit more experience now in that role, uh, not just as a presenter, but as someone who is interviewing people, speaking to people, and trying to follow various threads of complicated conversations with actively listening, but also drawing out what I think are the themes and important things Mm -hmm. to to focus on. And I think because I had a bit of experience and also my head being a little clearer this time around, because I think when we filmed the last series, I was just coming off the back of the book. I had just done The Fringe, won the Orwell Prize, uh, had another child. And so my head was absolute mince. You know, mm-hmm. I was I was using painkillers and all that uh, just to get through the long shooting days while mm. I'm out talking to people about the drug crisis. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so uh, this time around, um, I just sort of, I recognised that there wasn't a lot of the first series that I could actually remember doing because I was like a rabbit in the headlights. And this time around, I, I felt a lot of gratitude for being given another opportunity and really wanted to savour every moment of it. You get days that are difficult. You get days that you fly through. But I was really kind of, uh, I was really focused on trying to be a good co-worker, trying to be someone who was supportive of people around me. And even though as the presenter, you can, uh, it's very easy to sort of um, slip into isolating yourself within the team because... Mm-hmm. You know, people treat you a wee bit special because you're the presenter. Um, but it was important for me to be aware of any slipping into that because, like, I, I, I like to be on the shop floor with everybody else. I like us mm. all to sit down and eat together if we can. Obviously, with COVID, it was difficult. But I enjoy that. I enjoy that kind of quite intense uh, bonding that happens when you work in a small, tight-knit group for a limited period of time. Um, mm. so I really just wanted to be pleasant to work with um, and, and really just enjoy the experience. And and I think that that, for the most part, was achieved. Uh, at least that was the feedback that I got. And, and I think that's reflected in my presentation style and just the general kind of aura that I give off. I've seen rough cuts mm-hmm. to some of the episodes and I can see the difference. You know, I can see the difference just in terms of me being very, very present. Mm-hmm. I always find that as well. That probably will be really visible and, and noticeable for people that when you have get that sort of intense wee working unit. I, I don't know if it's if you feel you've got a bit of a safety net or people are at your back, but I don't know. You just feel more, even if it's subconsciously supported. Um, you mentioned there about the, the when you did the last series that you were kind of just coming off the back of winning the Orwell Prize. Obviously, your book Poverty Safari, which came out in twenty seventeen, which I highly recommend for anybody. Uh, I had it an audio book. I absolutely loved it. Um, another issue, I suppose, another thing you were dealing with is, and something that you've said before is that off the back of all of that, not only have you have you got all this sort of thing or stuff going on in your head, but you've gone up a few tax brackets and you've become the most affluent person in your family. Now, I suppose it's the sort of the 
I don't know what you call it. The, st- the stereotype or the sort of stereotypical response for me when somebody has got more money, I'm like, what's the fucking problem, mate? Mm. Like, <laughs> what's the issue? But there are a whole load of issues. And then it makes me think about my whole inverted snobbery where I, I'm judgmental, I'm upwardsly judgmental of people who are in a class above me. Mm. And I don't mean to be, but it's just the way, the kind of the way it is. What are there issues that you've kind of noticed that the upper classes are kind of going through? Are, are any of them sort of looked on in the, in the show? Yes, that's another thing that's distinctive from uh, before. Uh, I was only interested in doing another series if we examined privilege as well as poverty because it's two sides of the same coin. You mm. can't talk about a society being unequal uh, without examining where power actually lies, where influence actually lies. And what we have just now is a kind of democratic economic setup which intuitively understands the needs, interests and aspirations of people who make uh, a considerable amount of money compared to people who don't. And so rather than it being some great conspiracy to shaft the poor, it's a kind of, it's a byproduct of the people in power and influence at various levels of society, uh, understanding what their needs are and then kind of conflating that with the needs of the country. Mm. So, so it creates various norms and sensibilities culturally, economically, politically, uh, and that's why society continues to go in a direction that is good for a considerable number of people. Let's not pretend otherwise. There's a reason why many people vote for the status quo. It's because the mm. status quo works for them. And and due to this, the, the, the cultural experiences that, that, are, that are created within that sphere, these people very rarely, apart from in media, have to interface with what's going on on the other side of the tracks. So in a sense, you can't really blame them for not understanding viscerally that mm-hmm. something needs to change a bit more fundamentally than labour and power. Um, but what we what we, what we we tried to do was, again, not necessarily go into it with an agenda, but to just let people speak for themselves and let the viewers decide. So we spoke to as well as people who experience gambling addiction, people working in call centres, things of that nature. We spoke to uh, a guy who owns 8,000 acres uh, in Angus. Um, we spoke to a guy who runs a polo school, and I even mm. got shot a polo and horse riding, and we spoke to pigeon racers. Uh, I visited a cricket club in uh, Inverness and played cricket. Um and so I think the viewer will get a kick out of uh, the entertainment aspect of seeing mm-hmm. me doing things that normally I don't get the chance to do in real life, never mind get the chance to be filmed doing in media, because for me it's Hi. so often been sit on this staircase and look like you're about to smack the cameraman, you know? <laughs> don't smile, look angrier. Uh, yeah. And it's constantly just being asked if I'm annoyed about things, do you know what I mean? Because... I'm only seen through that narrow emotional lens of anger. So it was great to just, uh, you know, be walking around this big baronial estate um, playing uh, croquet with Hugo Rifkin, who is the, the, the ultimate centrist dad, do you know what I mean, who writes yeah. times, uh, and getting along with him quite well. Uh, it was a great laugh to um, 
you know, run out onto a, a cricket field when it's pissing the rain and, and feel really supported by all the guys that are playing and to be really challenged on a deep level about my preconceptions mm. of cricket and sport, but also be able to offer that analysis in the end. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think that, that this is a more challenging series because the last one, all it was challenging was people's assumptions about poverty. This one is mm-hmm. going to challenge people's assumptions about themselves. That's a really interesting point, challenge people's assumptions about themselves, because I was just thinking that we all have these preconceptions of other people, whether it's your next-door neighbour or, or somebody who you work with or somebody that you see in the press or, I don't know, somebody that you see in, in the papers for negative reasons. Um, there's, what I've learned through COVID, and I don't know, this is probably a soundbite that I would have said in the past, there's more that unites us than divides us. There's more that connects us and separates us. But I think... In the COVID times, um, and I, I kind of wanted to just avoid even talking about that because it's all everybody talks about. But what I've learned is that there is far more that connects us. Everybody is, you know. I don't know if people are becoming more aware of their their economic fragility yeah. in the sense that you are one missed paycheck or you are one uh, missed furlough away from being fucked, like you're on the street. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you would hope that would generate a more of a collective sort of. Um, like togetherness well when when uh, not to labor on the covid point i agree it's it's getting a bit tiresome but i think there, there are some specific lessons that we should learn and one that sort of speaks to the point that you were making there is the minute that it was understood by government that a community response was what was going to bring the virus down rather than looking at it as individuals in a rat mm. race, then suddenly the government began to give us all permission to look after our neighbour, to consider ourselves as having the virus and not to infect other people. We were not just encouraged to be mindful of others. We were told that this was the only way out of it, you know. And and so what you noticed was a distinct temporary shift in the public mood away from the tribalism and the individualism mm. and the partisanship and this outpouring of gratitude for public services and frontline workers. Um, so it just showed you the power of political rhetoric and really that also then gives you a re- an understanding of why previously things weren't like that because the political rhetoric was different. The mm. rhetoric was based on... Um, these are the bad guys, we're the good guys. Look at all the bad stuff they've done. Look at all the great stuff we've done. Um, and 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 when you when you understand that, you start to see the games that, that political leaders play uh, because what they're trying to do is regiment society according to what their political needs are. But when a big crisis mm. like this hits, then it becomes about something bigger. You know, it becomes about this, the health of the society. And... and I just wish it could be more like that all the time. You know, I, I wish it... Because when you think about this, right, when you're standing in a queue now, you have a completely different conception of your level of vulnerability, right? Mm. You have a completely different conception of what is going on around you. You have a different awareness of what's expected of you. Now, the reason you have that is not because you know anything about the science behind this stuff. It's because politicians and experts are constantly repeating it over and over and over. So within a matter of weeks, our entire 
internal framework for understanding what is going on is different. Now, imagine every day a politician came on television and said, every homeless person you see, by and large, is a victim of child abuse. Mm. Imagine a, a politician came on television every day and says, addicts are a pain in the arse, but addiction is more like an illness than a moral failing. And imagine that was mm-hmm. repeated over and over and over. So imagine how your awareness of those social problems would change when you were waiting in a queue, looking down the street at the people sleeping rough or people falling about on methadone scripts and all the rest of it. So it's really, really important the tone that politicians take. And ultimately, if they told us more the truth of things, like they do with COVID, rather than what suits their base or what suits their assumption, Mm -hmm. then I just think the general vibe in society would be a little less hostile. But that's, that's obviously just my take on it. I no, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And it's something that I had both thought about and hadn't thought about in this detail. I mean, not that I'm asking you to come up with, you know, in the space of 10 seconds here while I'm putting you on the spot. Um, not that I'm asking you to come up with, okay, still hear me, all right? Aye, aye, I was just shutting the window. Aye. Kids next door are at right. basketball. No worries. <laughs> Those bastard kids. They should be in. There's a virus going on, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> That, that's my kind of go-to if there's anything I don't like. There's a pandemic, fuck's sake. Um, I know that I'm asking you to come up with, with a solution, but how do we, or do you do you have an idea as how do we as people, you and I, uh, or people in media, or pe- just people in general society, how do we counteract that political rhetoric? Because it is unbelievably powerful. They managed to push through Brexit, um, and they managed to prevent you know Scotland for gaining its independence mm. um, off the back of it. I mean, is there a way? Is there anything we can do, or do we need to rely on v- voting in people who who we feel more accurately, accurately sorry, represent us, or do they, those people even exist that represent us? I think there's a general misconception about what politics is for, and I think that the, it begins with people believing they exist outside of politics and that politicians are a specialist professional class and mm. that they do the politics and then we choose between what sort of politics we want every few years. That is a, an element of politics. But for me, politics is about more than that. It's about understanding your community. It's about organising. It's about... Um, knowing your turf so well that if there's a problem, you intuitively know who to get in touch with to deal with it. So there there are many politicians out there in communities. Some of them are running food banks. Some of them are organising football teams for wayward young people. Some of them are opening recovery cafes and abstinence-based fellowships. These are all political acts on some level. Uh, they all involve the same set of skills that your MP has, except there isn't also this artificial uh, party line that always has to be uh, walked very carefully. Um, there isn't the constant thought of what did the other party say or what do we need to say in order to get elected. And then the second aspect of this is politicians don't really initiate change. Politicians take the temperature of society and they do whatever they think they can get away with doing, or as little as they think they can get away with doing. Mm. Um, and this isn't because they're bad people. This isn't because uh, they want to harm society. It's because imagine a politician is uh, at the dashboard of a spaceship, right? And they're there by themselves. 
right? Every light that comes on is pulling that politician's attention, right? So society is a dashboard with millions of lights going off all the time, right? So it's about what one's got the loudest beep, what one is shining mm-hmm. the brightest. That's the one that the politician is going to focus on. If we want, if we've got an issue that we want a politician to pay attention to, we have to be making the noise consistently. We have to be shining the light very bright in their face. And there's no better evidence of that than the Scottish government's response to the drug death crisis, which is a direct result of mm-hmm. campaigning of grassroots organisations uh, drawing a line and saying we've had enough. And uh, the reason that your last government minister had to resign was because we put you in a position where you had no other choice. So we demonstrated Mm -hmm. our power. And because of that, we've now got a new minister dedicated to drug policy and a commitment to £250 million over five years. Increased rehab beds, increased access to treatment, a commitment to aspire to a place where when somebody presents looking for help with a drug problem, they begin their treatment that day. Now, that's a direct result, not of politicians, because Nicola Sturgeon doesn't know that much about the drug problem, believe me. Mm -hmm. It's because of the campaigning that's gone on, because of the organising. And see all of that? That's politics. So if you want change, if you want to counteract things, you have to go and find other people who are of the similar mind And you have to go on a journey of getting to some extent organised because um, that's that's historically how real social change comes about. It's not politicians sitting thinking, how could we change society? It's politicians saying, we better change that or we're in trouble. That that is a great a great example of the sort of light shining. So the first minister has outlined a range of actions to tackle the crisis, as you say, two hundred and fifty million pounds pledged over five years to tackle the issue. I think it's great with the with the sort of grassroots stuff and the conversations you're having, or that everybody's having. Well, you've just said um, earlier that how powerful it would be if a politician was to be on TV saying, "Look, every homeless drug addict you see has probably been a victim of some horrendous experience." Um, they've sort of outlined the number of areas where improvements will be made. So it, that is showing where the failings are. So they're substantially increasing the number of residential rehabilitation beds across the country. So straight away, that's a good sign, showing that they're starting to look at it more as a health issue as opposed to to that being a criminal issue. Reducing the stigma and increasing the number of people in treatment for their addiction. Again, it's a conversation I've had so many times. I had it with you. I had it with the campaigner, Peter Crycant, with Paul Sweeney, former MP, Glasgow North East, even with a Berlin prison guard where we talked about this constant cycle of just offending, stealing, yeah. or, or, you know, petty crime back in, in court, and it just never ends. So taking people out of that that cycle, allocating funding directly to alcohol and drug partnerships uh, with third sector and grassroots organisations to improve working communities, widening the dis- distribution of naloxone, is that like a sort of replacement? Or like a, is that like a naloxone. sort of... Naloxone, naloxone basically uh, is, is a kind of is a drug that reverses the effects of a of, of an opiate opiate overdose. Oh, aye. So, aye, aye, we spoke about this. Somebody, somebody injects heroin. They take a it's a bad batch, or they they inject too much. They start mm-hmm. opiating. Somebody can administer naloxone, and this will save them from from death, mm-hmm. basically. So, very important part of the puzzle. 
um, in terms of actually stopping death. But as we know, many people who die, uh, die on their own, right? Mm. They're by themselves. And so if you're by yourself, nobody can administer naloxone. So that it's not a thing that works all the time. It's more contingent on naloxone being available in places where addicts will be. So that's why safe consumption rooms are a part of mm-hmm. this. And also uh, maybe police officers and social care professionals and other people who encounter addicts uh, would be qualified to administer naloxone. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the focus can be too much on that because obviously it's about preventing death. And so, you know, that's a, that's a quantifiable thing that you can say, we administered 1,000 naloxone doses. That yeah. Say it's preventing 1,000 naloxone deaths. And, and governments tend to gravitate towards things that can be quantified. It's a bit harder mm. to quantify what happens when someone goes into rehab for three months. It's a bit harder to quantify what happens when somebody goes to a 12-step meeting for, for nine months, you know, and maybe gets six months sober. So what tends to happen is we see the things that are quantifiable as successes and the things that are hard to quantify as 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 potential failures, you know. So if somebody relapses on methadone, uh, we, we have a setup currently that says they're not having, they're not getting enough methadone. That's why they've relapsed. Mm. So we have to up their methadone dosage. But if they go into rehab and they come out of rehab and they relapse within a few months, we say that's because rehab doesn't work. We don't say they need longer in rehab. We need to up their rehab dose. So mm-hmm. there's kind of, there's some logical inconsistencies across the board in terms of the drug sector, but this announcement is the biggest shift that we've seen in decades. I would say the biggest yeah. shift that we've seen since the introduction of opiate replacement therapy, you know, mm-hmm. which, which is something what, that was brought in in the 90s to deal with the heroin epidemic. When I looked at what Nicola Sturgeon said about it, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of read a couple of lines out of it, I, I was really struck, because see when a politician speaks, more often than not, it's kind of white noise. You're like, eh, this is just political part of this. doesn't really mean anything. It's like saying a whole load of words without actually saying anything at all. But she said, MD that ends up losing their life as a, as a result of drug addiction is not just failed at the time of their death. In most cases, they will have been failed repeatedly throughout their whole life. That, to me, is, is taking a huge portion of responsibility like societally like how many times somebody's been failed whether it's by a teacher a pal a neighbor a family member the authorities the police or whatever and hearing that coming from the very top of the scottish government is, is a way of saying like no we're gonna we're gonna absorb some of this blaming responsibility yeah. and try and turn that around it's encouraging i mean the figures right not to get too boring we're we reading out facts and figures but in case people don't know so the, the 2018 figures showed that Scotland's drug-related death rate was higher than all other EU countries. I will point out there's probably a caveat I need to acknowledge that there are recognised issues we under-reporting in some countries. But Scotland, with a population of 5.5 million, had a similar number of overdose deaths as Germany, with a population of 83 million. Um, it is a public health emergency, and I suppose now through people like you, other campaigners, we, we've... we've made that as you say those lights on the dashboard you've made it shine brightly and beep loudly enough that that something has been done and it's encouraging it's it's, it's a very positive thing to see and it, it benefits everybody i always do this thing where i sort of play the role of 
again for anybody that's willfully ignorant enough to think this is me but I'll play the role of the the ignorant idiot and say well what do I care about some fucking junkie I've never taken drugs I, I pay my tax and it's like well it, it impacts everybody you pay your tax okay your tax money could be better spent it yeah. could be saved why not now stop this constant cycle take people out of prison help people yeah. it's, it's a health it's a health thing absolutely and and this isn't to say that we have to be soft on people who create misery in the lives of others but what people need to understand to believe in this punitive approach, which is evidentially not got any real basis in reality, um, and this is as true of the war on drugs in America as it is on all our punitive approaches here, addiction mm. is uh, something that centres primarily in a person's mind. So you can wake up and think, today I am not going to use drugs, I'm not going to drink alcohol, this is it. I swear off this. But what will happen without you going into some form of treatment or recovery program is that ultimately the lie that you can use or drink safely will burrow its way back into your mind until one mm. day you'll find yourself confronted by the thought that it's okay to use or some other excuse that you make. And people say, well, that's a choice. And yes, it is a choice but it's a choice that must be understood in a specific context. When a person relapses on drugs or when they continually seek out drugs despite the detrimental effects to them and their community, um, a person judging that decision uh, from a distance is judging that with their sense of choice in mind. They're imagining yeah. the addict has the same range of choices and the same ability to assess and make those choices when in actual fact, and I say this from experience, um, when the thought uh, arises in your mind to use, um, it's kind of it's like a kind of lust almost. You know, it pushes all mm -hmm. the thoughts out of the mind, and uh, as well as the mental aspect of it that's drawn you to it, which kind of reorders your sense of priority, and the only thing you can think about is obtaining this drug. Also, mm -hmm. what happens is all of the other memories of all of the carnage of everything bad that happened, that is barely a feature in that particular moment because for whatever whatever happens in the addictive mind, it's like it can only think about the using. It can't recall all the pain. It can't recall all the pain to other people. It can't recall the misery of withdrawal, the humiliation of prison time. It all just goes out the window. So, mm -hmm. aye, that's a choice but it's not much of a fucking choice. <laughs> and so this is what people need to understand. I know that there's a lot of folk out there who see the harm caused socially and locally because of the, the chaos that addicts can create, particularly the serious addicts are having to use heroin multiple times a day. So I, I mm -hmm. really sympathise with that. Um, and, and I do think uh, that people have to take responsibility for their behaviour. But what those people have to understand is that when a person goes on a process of recovery, taking responsibility for their behaviour is absolutely a part of that. In fact, you mm -hmm. can't get sober and stay sober unless you take responsibility. You know, I mean, I've made amends to countless people in my life. I've made amends to family members. I've made amends to institutions. I've made amends to friends. I've made amends to women 
I've made amends to all sorts of things for things that I said or did when I was under the influence of alcohol, taking full responsibility for whatever has occurred. And even to this day, there might be things that I'm not aware of that I've done, that I'm open to taking responsibility for if I'm mm-hmm. aware of it. So that is where mm-hmm. recovery has placed me on a kind of higher thought plane where I understand that I've caused harm in my life. And that process of cleaning up the wreckage is what keeps me safe from thoughts of relapse because I'm not in that negative headspace where I'm in denial about stuff. So when people want tougher, tougher this, tougher that, they have to understand the toughest thing an addict can do is recover. That is a hard Mm. process and that needs to be supported. And on that process, every harm that an addict has caused to some extent, can be repaired in some way. Mm. The shift has been monumental. I now wonder if the next shift that could come in, it might take a long time, would be the decriminalisation sorry, or, or legalisation. I interviewed a guy, an undercover police officer. He's retired now, a guy, Simon McLean. And he was saying that, so he's involved in the law enforcement action partnership, the sort of pushing for the decriminalisation of drugs. And he was saying that he spent his career infiltrating like major drug rings and every time he thought, I'm making a positive impact, but he's over time has begun to realise that with every success, they were making the situation more dangerous because they're then creating and solidifying this marketplace where the rule of law just doesn't go. Like organised crime then starts to to flourish. I think the misuse of drugs act is now fifty years old. There doesn't seem to be any appetite for reform. I, I mean, do like, you see as it's like trying? Do you see as like going towards it? Aye. Police officers trying to intervene in the manufacture and distribution of drugs is like trying to put a square peg in a round hole, because we're dealing with two different things. Drug dealers and manufacturers are a product of an economic reality where there is a demand for a product and Mm -hmm. you're supplying it, right? So if you want to deal with the supply, you have to deal with the demand. If you want to deal with the demand, you have to have less people becoming addicted. You have to have more treatment for people who do become addicted because you can't have law enforcement try to intervene in an economic issue. It just doesn't work. It's like trying to stop the tide, isn't it? Aye, well, economic just economics transcends everything. Right, the the most basic law of life is supply and demand. Right, people want something; they're going to get it from somewhere. Right, they can't stop child uh, sex images. Right, child abuse images. These images are available on Pornhub until very recently. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a morally reprehensible situation. Right. But even if Pornhub deletes every single video, verifies every single account, people are still going to find that stuff somewhere because mm. there's a demand for it. And this is the same of any product, any service that you can think of that exists. It exists because people want it. Now, obviously, that doesn't absolve the moral responsibility of manufacturers of dangerous drugs, street Valium, dodgy batches of heroin, and so on and so forth. But what is the ethical difference? What is the ethical difference between people who manufacture and distribute drugs outside the law and people who manufacture and distribute drugs inside it? Because mm. if you look at where this thirst for street value came from, it came from 
in part the over-prescription of state-sponsored pharmaceutical-grade benzodiazepines and opiates mm. that were flooded into society in the, in the 90s. How do you think people became... Where did they get a taste for Valium? They got a taste for Valium for the local NHS health board. The local GP was the pusher because at the time, mm. these were just wonder drugs that stopped people taking heroin and causing heroin-related crime. So later on, a panic developed because they realised that these drugs were too readily available and that they had prescribed them in communities where their pleasant effects are very desirable because these drugs make you feel safe. These drugs make you feel secure. These drugs make you feel optimistic. The problem is mm. you need to keep taking them and you need to keep taking them in higher amounts to produce those effects. And what they did was, in a panic, they just cut the supply. They cut the supply of these drugs. And this is where the, the desire for street Valium and Xanax and all of that comes from. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not saying your doctors is, is on the same moral playing field as a guy manufacturing <laughs> drugs in a factory. But I'm saying strip yeah. away all of the kind of when you strip away all of the the narratives and all of the all of the other flesh around it all, what you see is people people creating a demand for drugs or supplying a demand for drugs, and that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Well, you said uh, interesting comment. You said economics transcends everything. Now, with the state of the British government at this point and for the last eleven years now, obviously very money uh, finance focused or economics focused. For, for their own benefit anyway it surprises me that they haven't even so much as brought up the conversation about legalisation, maybe they're all too wired in the House of Commons to actually have time to stop and think, maybe if they're really sober up they'll be like, hold on a minute, there's a bit of money to be made here, there's, I think there's 16 states in America that's decriminalised uh, that's recreational marijuana use decriminalising 16 states and it's legal in another 15 and they say that it could be worth $130 billion a year to the US economy within the next two or three years. And it surprises me that, that they have not thought about that because if they're not interested from the health perspective, surely they'd be able to disguise it as health concerns but just make a shitload of money because then you, you you just know that they would all be invested in, in these companies as well. I think some of them are beginning to get invested. You know, I think some yeah. of them are kind of surveying that landscape to see, okay, how can we place ourselves at the near the top of the supply chains these things so that when it does become legalized then we are in a position to profit from that i think in britain as well as you econo- as well as economics and the importance in saying that it transcends things we also have uh, a lot of ideological stuff that goes on particularly with conservative minded people of a certain age right who are not necessarily being exposed to the drug culture and have sort of viewed it from a distance as being attributable to this big moral decline, you know, that they see occurring. Um, they'll attribute the drug crisis to the the, the the fact that the church isn't as central to community life anymore, uh, the decline mm. of religion, um, addiction being a choice, you know, all of these things which I would say are highly debatable. But they, they, they live in a bit of a bubble where they don't have to contend with their assumptions perhaps being wrong. And, and mm-hmm. so politicians also have to cater to that. So a politician within themselves might know that uh, legalising cannabis is probably an economically sensible thing to do. Um, there's certainly a, a, a strong argument, at least, that socially it might make a bit more sense. Um, 
because it takes away the taboo and stigma around certain drugs. Um, and if you compare the, the, the harm caused by a drug like cannabis, where there's been no known fatalities related to it, uh, when, mm-hmm. when compared with other drugs that are legally available, like cigarettes and uh, nicotine, and <laughs> alcohol, then I don't see, you know, what what the the ethical problem with legalising it is. But that's not the only thing a politician is considering. They're also looking at the dashboard and they're saying, it's going to cost me more politically to ignore the, the right-wing, you know, perhaps kind of Christian conservatives who have this yeah. idea of drugs being a moral issue. Um, and so, you know, they'll wait until a more advantageous time to bring so- something like that forward. I'm I'm not sure if I'm accurate in saying this, but I would assume that in America, where this has been legalised, it'll be in large part because of uh, maybe local government that's a wee bit m- more centre-left. You know, yeah, I, I, I think it will tend to be your coastal states or your sort of more liberal, I more um, liberal, I, I, um, it's, it's well, it's, it is an interesting shift because even five years ago, ten years ago, if you'd have suggested this, you'd be like, no way. I would have anyway. I'd have been got no fucking chance. Yeah. I think Portugal were one of the leaders, weren't they, in terms of their harm reduction. Uh, and decriminalisation, and, and I suppose it's something that just takes a long time to be able to study the effects. I think once governments do start going, hold on, there's a lot of money, we just are going to have to push for this now, but it totally makes sense about what is what is going to cost a politician more, and who who is the audience that's going to react to it. Mm. Um, time will tell, I suppose, but it is quite mad as well, just to imagine that there could come a time one day where you... You're like, uh, I don't know, two Budweiser's, a white wine and uh, a bag of gear, please, mate. There is a possibility. I, <laughs> I know no is no as simple as that, but it could be along those lines. I, 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 I wouldn't love to see it, but one day they'll find a cure. They'll find a cure for the addictive mind, you know? Mm-hmm. They'll find a way, they'll find out what the central issue is and they'll either be able to definitively prevent it from occurring uh, mm-hmm. So there's lots of different factors. There's the genetic factor, then that, that's kind of triggered by the environmental factors. So I became an addict, maybe not because I was born an addict, but because I had those genes in me and I grew up in an environment similar to my mother who was an addict. And so that that sort of brought all those addictive tendencies online. But, you know, whether it's because of environmental improvements socially that we make, scientific advances in terms of the neurochemistry of addiction and uh, Mm -hmm. understanding is there a kind of toxicity threshold that you need to reach before you become an addict and how do you stop yourself and go near the cliff edge or if it's as simple as putting a microchip in or an injection or something where people just regain the ability to exercise some sort of rational decision making while enjoying the pleasant effects that come with these kind of stimulant mm-hmm. presents, you know, like I, That's, um, I do see a day where that occurs, um, but I wouldn't take the risk. I wouldn't take the risk, even if it was made available to me. Um, you know, I, 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 I my, my test subjects in front of me. Hi, well, so my tongue is somewhat placed in my cheek as I say this, uh, and it's a wee bit devil's advocate part of. But if you were able to do that, right, to basically take away the addictive 
um, tendencies or whatever, I think the world would then become a duller place. Because every time you hear like some musician or some genius, they're always like, I was just addicted to this. And it's like, oh no, like I want to have a better society, but I also fucking love good tunes. Aye. And I don't like, can we, can we strike a balance? Just for, we can really get them in and black. What are you addicted to? Guitar? Right now, you're not getting it. Uh, <laughs> the difference might just be you could go out and get rat arsed. But you wouldn't wake up the next day thinking, I need to I need to get back on it. You know what I mean? Right. You would be able to rationally right. say, it's not going to do me any good to continue drinking for a third day in a row. You know? But mm. For me, there's no ability. Once I've started, the, then uh, I lose the ability to choose when I drink or use so I could leave the house and say, right, that's it, I'm done. And then walk past the chemist. And just be triggered by something that I see, or walk past mm-hmm. an off license and just be triggered by something I see. I mean, I remember relapsing um, uh, when I was walking through uh, like a, 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 a train station. Do you know what I mean? And I saw mm-hmm. enjoying a pint, and I thought, why can't I enjoy a pint? I can enjoy a pint, you know. And and so I bought into the lie. I can enjoy the pint. I have the pint. I start having another pint. Next thing I'm on the phone, try to find out where I can buy Bucky in Manchester. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And within half an hour, I'm walking down the street with my fly open, staggering about because my body wants to drink like I used to drink, which is Mm -hmm. a lot of alcohol very fast and still no be slurring my speech. But, but my, 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 I can't cope with that amount of alcohol now because my threshold for alcohol is different. So Aye. straight away, I'm just like you know, I'm I'm just away with the fairies, um, and and so if if I was to be administered with some kind of cure for that inability to exercise <laughs> rational choice, then I might I might I might get stoned or high or drink and write a good tune, you know, but then I'll know when to stop, you know. So I think mm-hmm. I think and also that 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 trope of the mad genius drug addicted it's 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 false more than it's true it's just true in a few very famous instances but there's a lot of artists out there who are creating really good work sober do you know what i mean they just don't talk about being sober a lot of the time uh all lemmy's best stuff has all been done in his sobriety all frankie boyle's Mm -hmm. best stuff has all been done in their sobriety and i think a lot of them just didn't get the chance to get sober to show us how much better they probably would have been. Um, you know, because I think it's all right when you're young and it's all rock and roll and fucking this and mm-hmm. that. But see when you're fucking getting on a bit and you're falling about <laughs> and you're a mad, selfish, resentful arsehole. It's no cool. It's not a good look. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Words of wisdom for anybody that's, that needed to hear it there. Uh, no, I, you, you kind of said at the start that often you're seen through the prism of anger, that's how you're asked. But I do have to go into this. So see the, the I wish I was dead yep. thing that you released? Yep. Unbelievable. So for anybody that's not seen it, it's a sort of video and a, a track and it shows somebody that appears to be spiralling and like rapidly losing control, making harmful decisions. Like in the, you're walking past, in this video, you're walking past uh, Boots in Central and you go in. What is that that you put in the water bottle? It's so so pe- people who people who have deal with this particular addiction will, will understand what that is. So um, over the counter, you can get p- p- painkillers that have codeine in them, right? Right. Now codeine's an opiate, 
and uh, there's in the really strong ones you get about 13 milligrams of codeine in each tablet, right? So if you take four or five uh, tablets, I take the soluble ones because it gets in your system faster, and you can actually get a wee dunt, right? You can get a wee dunt. Now, obviously, mm. because there's paracetamol in them, you've got to watch how many you're taking, or at least that's what you tell yourself in the beginning. But what uh, I realised over the last couple of years was that my addiction had transferred onto these tablets. So what I would do is I would take... Um, maybe four or five sulpidine and also then four or five ibuprofen with codeine. So then I'm getting double the amount, but I'm not taking as much paracetamol and I'm not taking as much. But even that mm -hmm. is mad. You know, that's dangerous. And then so if you're doing that three or four times a day, you're taking 30-odd tablets, you're taking the equivalent of a bag of heroin worth of opiates, but also the bigger risk is all this paracetamol and ibuprofen, which can... You know, you can die. You can, it's actually mm -hmm. fatal. And uh, so that was going into boots and, and basically getting getting a, a, a packet of them, dissolving them in a bottle, you know, getting it down the hatch and that triggering basically that, a, a aye, serious aye. relapse. That shows my naivety because I was like, is he get a hangover for the night before? Mm -hmm. And he's getting like a Barocca or something to try and square him up. I just couldn't work out where it might have been. Um, but in this, so eventually you obviously go on to make sort of harmful decisions like in relation to booze and drug consumption. So I'll play this wee clip, right? I'll just play a wee clip from uh, the, the bit where it's don't do it when the darkness falls, you'll come through it. And let people kind of hear the vibe of it. Go and watch it and I'll, I'll include a link in the notes for them that watch to go and see it. But I would encourage you to go and watch it because it's, Fucking powerful, and, and I'll give a couple of my thoughts. So here's this first wee clip. I so I mean, it looks and sounds to me like you're speaking to a version of yourself that sometimes comes out as if you're sort of trying to push something back in. Is that right in saying that? Aye, I think that you don't create a piece of work that has that emotional resonance. And, I mean, within days that had been viewed uh, 200,000 times across different mm -hmm. platforms, you know. Um, so as far as, as a, a kind of artistic ripple in culture in Scotland. That was one of the biggest things that happened last year. And mm. and uh, the reason for that was no because there was a big promotional campaign, no because there was a big media support for it, because it wasn't. It was because it spoke to so many people in situations similar to that or who are on the periphery of other people's situations. And you do not speak to that many people so deeply without uh, bringing your own emotional truth to the fore in some way. Mm -hmm. So the, the, these songs actually are, are, are about a year and a half to two years old, and they're part of an album that I'm continuing to work on but struggling to get finished because of lockdown. But the material mm -hmm. keeps getting better the longer it cooks, um, and these songs are evidence of that because they were written a while ago. Um, so what we decided was myself and, and uh, Gasp, Brian Adams, friend of mine, who's also a, a musician and a filmmaker, um, we decided 
uh, that rather than do a video for each of them, we would kind of like mash them together and then and then title mm-hmm. it. So the, the, it's a short film called I Wish I Was Dead, but it's comprised of two separate songs, Run To It, produced by Jim Sutherland, right. and Don't Jump, produced by Tony Smoke. And it really is an attempt mm-hmm. to kind of show, obviously in a very stylized in, uh, way, the how quickly uh, your day can really go bad, you know, based mm-hmm. on just making bad decisions, like, you know, stressed out on your phone all the time, drinking too much coffee, uh, worrying what other people think, not being honest about how you feel and how quickly you can spiral out of control. And I think in the context of the drug death crisis, the mental health crisis, the suicide crisis, um, it was it was a pertinent subject for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I'll play this next week clip because this is the one that sort of really touched a nerve with me. I felt exposed and I felt really uncomfortable. Like as I was watching the screen, I was looking in the room to see if anybody was looking at me because I just felt felt a bit opened up. And it's obviously about the going on about the suicidal thoughts and not making that taking that step forward. Now for me, I speak about this quite openly. I spoke about it uh, yesterday in an interview. I was saying for me what it is is this weird voice that comes out of somewhere and so basically let's say um, I'm feeling a bit stressed things are getting on top of me and then I start having this thought process of here's what can go wrong and then this will happen here and this will happen here this sort of snowball nothing's actually happening and then out of nowhere a voice goes like well you know listen just hear me out just a suggestion but if things are get really bad you could always kill yourself you're like whoa where the fuck did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Where was that? And it, and it was just about those. I'll, I'll play. I'll play this week. Let people hear it, and then I'll can ask you a couple of questions. Don't jump. You regret that. Don't throw it all away. Take a step back. Standing in that black river as the waves shimmer. Doesn't it matter if you're a great swimmer. Don't jump. It's colder than you think. As soon as you let go, you'll be overcome by an instinct to survive. Then it's too late. You'll have sealed your fate. You'll go to your grave knowing stepping off was a mistake. Don't jump. I can see you're hurting. I can see you're suffering. The river's lined with restaurants and casinos. You can't afford to eat or play in. You're told to be grateful to work in. You have to act tougher than you are Just to express your masculinity No industry left to feel a sense of purpose or dignity Would it tell you that your problem's privilege? But think of your mates Think of your sisters Think of your dad's face Try and see beyond the mirage of sanity paints on the canvas of your brain As it aches with sadness and pain Don't jump I know you're sick of your phone The texts Being one of the best And getting no respect Losing yourself in a coke sesh Going from feeling sober and fresh To a total mess Most and depressed in your own head Abandoned sleeping bags on shop steps Women forced to sell corn flesh To more men Just for the money to score smack off The same guy that's loading them And your bug won't connect And normal ponds are snorefest Compared to forced and forced sex Or the impulses you develop Trying to cope Bring you more stress one more step closer to the edge don't jump realise your brilliance the mild stimulants you use to manage hypervigilance the toxic algorithm that's got you oscillating violently between humility and narcissism 
this city isn't pretty. It's brutal in its beauty. But I swear to God, it would be worse without you. And nobody dare. And nobody's boys top themselves as I'm standing on this fucking bridge talking to myself. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, I felt I felt exposed. I felt sort of seen, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's good. Uh, I mean, I've had loads of messages from people who uh, talk about how this song... Um, but I don't want to feel like I'm exposing people who got in touch, but it's quite a considerable number of people who have got in touch that they've been in a position where they were pretty close to going through with something and that this song was ringing around in their head. And that's what it was designed for because I feel like the mental health platitudes out there just now are very well but because of the nature of suicide, we never really get into the nitty gritty of it, you know? I mean, mm. even just if you look at how suicide is reported, on one hand, if you're reporting suicide, you can't actually make reference to it. You can't make reference to the method. You can't make reference to the place. Uh, Why is that? Is that just so you don't inspire people? It's because it's, it's, it's thought as being triggering for people who are suicidal. Right. But actually, okay. actually, and I understand that, but actually... For 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 thousands of years, suicide has been shrouded in dangerous misconceptions and myths, right? And the myth that it's a sin, the myth that it's a coward's way out, that goes back to the days of ancient Greece, right? Mm-hmm. Then then you had the the Abrahamic faiths, the main religions that all in different ways uh, ruled that suicide was against God's will, right? Even Buddhists take a quite a surprisingly harsh position on mm-hmm. death by suicide. So when you begin to understand all of that cultural and historical context, you realise that the myths and conceptions, they might change over time, but they just take different shapes, right? Because ultimately what we don't really want to confront is that thing that we all are terrified of, being in that position, looking into the water, mm-hmm. tying the noose, gubbing the tablets, putting the gun to your head, running in front of the train. Nobody wants to talk about that stuff. That stuff is bone-chilling. And unfortunately, this creates a culture where the only way that we can access and find a way into the issue of suicide is through well-meaning platitudes, like it's okay to not be okay. Um, mm, I talk about that quite you a know, lot. Reach out to somebody and da 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 Or the wee signs that people put on bridges now. But by the time somebody's yeah. got to the bridge... There's no much chance that someone like that's going to have much of an effect. So what you're trying to do is you try, try to create a message with sufficient depth and weight that means that going to the bridge isn't an option because they know that on the other side it's going to be a sense of regret. And that's a that's a that's quite a radical message to put into a mental health crisis. You know, to say, listen, mm-hmm. I know you want to die, but seeing your final moments, you're going to regret it, right? You're going to regret the decision that you made because you can't die that quick. Do you know what I mean? Trust me, I've researched mm. it. You can't die that quick unless you blow your brains out and that's a harder thing to do in this country. So mm. so that's, that's it may be counterintuitive for a lot of people but actually you can see how that message 
actually without any promotion, any government backing. There's no big adverts on the telly about it, but you can see how quickly that message spread and how powerful it was for a lot of people Mm -hmm. because it's so true. It's so true. Do you know what I mean? Um, Uh, Absolutely. Uh, that's 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 exactly it. it it's so true I, I always talk about the i was talking about it yesterday very sadly a guy a reality tv guy mick norcross took his life and uh yeah, whenever i say about the, the wee platitudes and sound bites and hashtags and all that i don't have any like anger towards them because people mean well but it's like that's not fucking enough like this is it's not enough yeah I mean, if if they're they're everywhere, but rates seem to be going up. So I mean, that's it's like let's actually get into it. Let's let's properly get into it into the nitty gritty and that that whole thing. I've that for me when I say those, about, about those thoughts coming in, it's more just this wee voice. I'm like, well, and I'll sometimes laugh up. I'm like, what the fuck, man? And I don't know if it's like your brain is just looking for any pressure release valve as a way of going, look, any stress you're feeling doesn't have to be yeah. final and permanent. Yeah. But then for some for some people, it'll just go further, but they'll then maybe take action yeah, on that. Yeah, I, I compare it to like, because every, every um, state of suicidality, which is all the the contemplation and 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 you know starting to plan things and getting that sense of relief from knowing you've got the ultimate insurance policy against your pain. That's you know? that's it. My Pierre, can we? We'll just finish here because it's never going to be summed up better than that. Your <laughs> ultimate insurance policy against your pain <laughs> and against your stress. That's what it is. It's like it's all. I was honestly like an insurance broker going, "Listen, I've got an idea." Yeah. And you're like, aye, fuck, aye, okay. And then it kind of, for me, it just, it is honestly like, imagine a Lilo's about to burst and you just squeeze the wee air valve and the pressure goes down. That's kind of what I feel like because I go, right, okay. Because you get you work yourself into a, 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 total, a total mindset or a state of stress because you're like, I can't keep going on like yeah. this. Even when it's just wee silly things, the, the, you just think. Without, without the... Uh... Somebody who's severely suicidal is not in a place where they can understand the broader context of why that's occurring. So they're in crisis mm-hmm. and that needs to be treated as such. And so the resources need to be there. But for anybody else who's interested in the issue, um, anybody who is, is is wanting to contribute in some way to this broader crisis, their energies would be best spent in understanding that uh, a lot of evidence, and a lot of the evidence is quite old as well, um, points to increases in the suicide rate whenever a society is going through some kind of momentous transition, which, mm-hmm. which uh, damages social bonds and connectedness. And ultimately what this does is it kind of unmoors us from uh, a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. It unmoors us and disconnects us from a sense of shared history, a sense of direction, um, a sense sometimes of morality. You know, people can descend into some very dark pathologies. Um, They can become violent. They can become almost kind of morally nihilistic. You know, they can become sexually harmful. Now, all of these things, um, obviously we have a system that will say, that will attribute a certain label to all of these things, you know, you're mental, you need to go in a mental institution, you're a sex offender, you need to go in this, 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 and the next thing. 
Um, but there's also a deeper malaise at play. People absolutely are all these things and absolutely should be held responsible for them. But where we see increases on these kind of things en masse, along with suicide and other, other problems like deaths of despair, we then have to look at what is actually going underneath on underneath the bonnet of society. So we are going through a big transition just now, politically, economically. Inequality is getting worse. Political dysfunction is on the increase. Obviously, when we're living in a time of crisis, it's hard to detect it and it's full scope. But what we're experiencing is a complex society in decline. And it happens very, very slowly. You know, it happened over hundreds of years for ancient Rome. But similar things mm-hmm. occurred. You know, there's this kind of, there's this constant self-concern. There's a sort of mass vanity that creeps in. There's, um, you know, uh, sexual indulgence. Do you know what I mean? All of these sort of things. And 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 I remember for my book, there's this kind of, um, there's this chapter I do about mental health in the book. And uh, I came across a study by a, a sociologist called Emil Durkheim uh, called On Suicide. And he wrote it during the time that France was transitioning from an agricultural society to a capitalist society. And he observed a spike in the suicide rate. And so he came up with this theory that it was because of a breakdown in social bonds, you know, because people's communities were being torn apart because it was like your, mm-hmm. your wee fucking uh, windmill and all that, your wee windmill. <laughs> we're putting a factory in here, mate. Do you know what I mean? So, fuck you. And so it's like, it's like, and, and that's what's happening now, you know? So with factories on the here now, what we have is like these kind of kid, kiddy on housing uh, estates where middle-class people move. Yeah. Uh, they don't have shops or community centres in them. They're all built around the idea of being middle class. That's it. Not at the centre of them. And uh, we have social media. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We're constantly immersed in ourselves. We're immersed in uh, how popular am I? How popular was I yesterday? Why have I not got what I should get? Why is that cunt got the things? That person's annoying me. Da, 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 da. Well, this is unhealthy. That's so dangerous, and this is happening on mass. This is what our culture is becoming. So it's no surprise that there's spikes in the suicide rate. There's no surprise that people are, some people have descended into a kind of moral nihilism. There's no surprise that people are storming Capitol Hill because they believe the political class are are uh, trafficking children uh, via pizza deli- pizza delivery companies. You know? <laughs> See when they burst into Capitol Hill. There was a part of me that was like, you're getting closer to the problem. You're getting closer to the problem, but you're just not there yet. <laughs> Aye, you're just off. Uh, it's, it's something that's been spoken about so much as well, but with all these issues and this sort of descent into this madness, you then get this sort of amplification and magnification that comes with social media, where it's constantly being broadcast to you. So I suppose it just it sort of speeds up that process or that, that sort of descent or disintegration yeah. that's funny I'm still laughing at you saying yes you get your wee one milk <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to burst out laughing that whole time because it's all I could hear <laughs> but that, that, that's, that kind of is what it comes down to you know people organise themselves around activities common bonds uh, economic necessities Aye. we're living in a society now where everything we organise around is a bit more abstract you know what I mean mm-hmm. so we're not really evolved to make sense of that or derive a sense of meaning from that. And without meaning, we don't really 
we can't really regulate ourselves mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we become increasingly stressed. We look for the coping strategies outside of us to deal with that. And these create compulsions and addictions that create more turmoil. And that's the sort of stuff that's pushing somebody towards suicidal ideation. That's the stuff that's pushing somebody uh, to a point where their pain is so much that they would rather die than have to live with it. They don't want to die. And they'll die thinking people aren't going to know I didn't want to die. But they'll die anyway because they just kind of make sense of all of that. This is, I'll get that. see what you just said there, a wee thing, I'm going to play this wee clip. I, I was joking when I shared this, right, but this kind of summed up how I felt. Oh, fuck, where did I put it? Here it's here. I, I was just joking, right, but I was saying, oh, this is how I've felt the entirety of lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. And that was me. That was me joking, right? With like pure quoting a Robbie Williams song for two thousand two. But that's it. It's like sometimes you don't want to die, but you're like, "Fuck this, man! I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to be born." <laughs> and see, when you're at that point where you're contemplating that, so that's like a cloud on your mental horizon, right? So you can see it in the context of the clearer skyline. So you sort of observe it, and you're like, "That's weird." Better keep my eye on the cloud <laughs> until Aye. you actually address where the cloud's coming from. Then one day you just wake up and you're surrounded by cloud and your world cloud mm-hmm. and you can't see the the skyline. There's no horizon line. It's just cloud. Aye, it's never your, coming back. And that's your reality. You know, that's your reality. If it, for anybody that's close to me that's a wee bit concerned, don't be. I'm half joking, but I, I'm all right. But I, I think everybody gets these thoughts. I think, I think when people, I don't know, if you ever bring it up or ever say it, you can all, when somebody reacts and I sit on me or recoils and I'm like this is a wee bit close to home for yeah. you because I think and you maybe you don't want to talk about it and you don't want to think about it and I think I think bringing it to the forefront is important knowing a sort of sense of martyrdom like I'm just doing my best everybody to raise attention for mental health like fuck off mate every cunt knows Aye. what it is but it's, I, I think it's important to kind of express yourself sometimes, especially if you ever, if you seem to, I think I can sometimes seem to come across as having a pure, idyllic, perfect, brilliant life. And it, while I'm not, and I'm not denying my how fortunate and how lucky I am, but uh, you know, I, I still have the kind of same wee dips as everybody else. I'm not going to try and deny it. Aye, and I think that that's that's an important commitment to being open to the point that it's practical in the public sphere. You know, um, mm-hmm. the the uh, the the one of the big misconceptions around suicide is that by talking about it with someone, we're going to encourage them to go through with it. That acknowledging that it exists is actually willing mm-hmm. it into existence. Um, as well as the obviously, then the flip side of that is the myth that uh, you can't talk someone out of it because if they've made the decision, there's no change in their mind. And it's just this mm-hmm. whole subject is just riddled with myths that are as old as as you can imagine. Um, so mm-hmm. talking talking openly about these things is cathartic for the person who's experiencing the difficulties, but it also helps to inform other people who are not necessarily well schooled on this issue. Geoff, first point is. Uh, the show, where can people see it when it does come It'll out? It'll be on BBC Scotland uh, and 
I, I assume it will run over four weeks and it will be available on the iPlayer for a time. So you can catch it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be sure to share that when the time comes, and obviously you will be yeah, as well. definitely. Um, and that's pretty much all I've got going on just now, man. I'm just like full time at home. Um, I'd kind of, I've not really got much time or space to work on my book. Uh, I've had a couple mm-hmm. of wee bouts here and there, maybe five days on the trot where I've made good progress. But just for me, this whole experience has been a real kind of battle with acceptance of there is any action that I take to improve my mental health. There is an equal and opposite response to the detriment of it that comes from circumstances I can't control. And and yeah. that's actually, I, I, I'm accepting now that lockdown actually is about me accepting that I live in a pigsty, that my children don't know how to tidy up, that I can't know <laughs> to do it because they don't get it. Uh, I have to accept right. that I'm putting on weight. I have to accept that I'm not going to go out for a run because it's snowy and it's icy. And I have to accept all of this because that is actually easier than trying to resist all of those facts. Um, yeah. You know, it's actually easier to become a money fat cunt. Do you know what I mean? And that's and <laughs> I, I need to just accept that. And that's difficult for me because that's against all my beliefs. <laughs> I'm I'm completely with you. I'm the exact same. But there will it'll pass. I keep saying when you're in the midst of the storm, you're like, this is the worst thing ever. But you just know that when it passes, you go, do you know what? We we collectively and individually get a chance to reset and realign and reprioritize, and and it will it will be what otherwise it'll be worth it. Of course, isn't it? The loss, the destruction, but I think we'll look back and go. Do you know what? I think we're collectively and individually better off for that. Um, I so hopefully we'll we'll get there sooner rather than later because it is fucking Aye. brutal. Uh, last thing then, when we descend into a Mad Max style uh, insanity, do you want to team up? Because you seem to know what you're talking about. Absolutely, mate. I'll be there. I'll, I'll be rounding up. I'll be rounding up the troops. We'll be heading straight for fucking the madness. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> heading straight for Westminster to ransack Thank the place. Uh, nice one, mate. Listen, it's lovely to speak to you. Geezer shouting. Do you know what I mean? You too, oh, mate. You too. Hope, hopefully, see you soon around later. Right, mate. I'll speak to you soon. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back again with another episode of Blethered Soon. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.